It is no hyperbole to say that we're living in time of crises, but how we respond to these crises with what solution, what medicine, depends on our understanding of the problem, of the ailment. After all, a misguided or even simply false diagnostic can lead to an ineffective uh, resolution at best, and at worst, can compound the problem in question. For me, this was one of the main takeaways from today's guest research on capitalism and world ecology, but his work goes much further than that, as you'll see today. His work features in academic courses worldwide, and his books have deepened our understanding of the inner workings of capitalism and world history. Today's guest is the co-author of A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things and Capitalism in the Web of Life, but also a professor of sociology at Binghamton University. Jason W. Moore, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming. Welcome, Jason. Thanks, Skander. Thanks, Jamie. A treat to be here today. Yeah, <laughs> treat, treat is, to uh, have treat you. Ours. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's... Uh, it's like I, I always say on the show, but surreal to uh, be able to speak and discuss and learn from directly uh, people whose work I've read Absolutely. and researched and studied. It's always a, a real pleasure. And I know that, you know, you, like a lot of your colleagues, are uh, overworked and, and busy as hell. So we always appreciate you making the time to come in uh, and talk to us. Um, My pleasure. I guess we'll just get right into it with a question you must have been asked a million times, but uh, you know, I guess there's a reason why we come back to it, is the term and concept of the Anthropocene, right? Uh, could you maybe explain a little bit for our listeners who may be unfamiliar, who've maybe, I don't know, heard it here or there in a video or in an essay, or maybe never at all, what the Anthropocene is? So the Anthropocene translates literally to age of man or age of humans. And it was developed by Paul Crutzen and Eugene Sterner in 2000 or, or in an essay uh, published in 2000 in the International Geobiosphere newsletter uh, to highlight the significance of what they saw as humans becoming a geological agent. So we can get into this, but let me just foreground at the beginning that while the term itself is new, sort of, versions of Anthropozoic, et cetera, go back to the 19th century, it is older in a world historical sense that it goes to the dawn of modernity and this idea of the eternal conflict between man versus nature, which is a specifically modern invention that comes out of the age of Columbus, the age of conquest and imperialism, the rise of capitalism, and the civilizing project about which we can talk a lot more. Uh, but even there, let's recognize that uh, what the Anthropocene as a geological epoch is supposed to replace is something called the Holocene, which was formulated in the 19th century and included human beings as geological agents. So there's a lot of rebranding here. And there's another rebranding that's going on today with what I call the popular Anthropocene, the uh, wider political, academic, social, scientific humanities discussion around the origins and development of environmental crisis. In that sense, the Anthropocene is essentially the neoliberal rebranding of Spaceship Earth, which was the dominant environmentalist concept in the 1970s. So it's worth talking about 
the Anthropocene in its popular and ideological dimensions, not simply its strictly geological dimensions, and then realizing that it fits within a longer history, both of elite environmentalism, uh, but also of capitalism civilizing project from 1492 to the present. And it seems like that the uh, you, you relate the, the concept of the Anthropocene to this general idea of scientism, which is quite interesting because it, 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 even though it might not entail specific political beliefs, it definitely feeds into political understandings of the world. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that. Well, I like to say good science with the uppercase G and the mm -hmm. uppercase S has never been a friend of working people. Good science in that sense has always been a weapon in the class struggle deployed by the rich against poor and working classes everywhere in the world, in the metropoles, in the colonies, in the global north, in the global south. So the, the earliest and most dramatically famous expression of this was Maltus. So Maltus was writing in an age of climate and class crisis. It was the worst, the last great cold snap of the Little Ice Age, if you will. This was an era of unprecedented class and anti-colonial revolt. This was the era, of course, of the French, Haitian, and, and American revolutions. Uh, the Irish revolt, spectacularly, this is the Wolf Tone Revolt in 1798, the year Maltus's first essay is published. And what was Maltus doing? He was invoking good science, the best scientific reason of the time, to say that the problems of inequality are from natural law. They're not from capitalist enclosure, exploitation, dispossession. No, they are from the unvirtuous, sinful, procreational tendencies of the poor and working classes. So there's a natural law explanation of capitalist inequality and justification for the existing class structure. This, it turns out, would be repeated successively over the past two centuries. If we go back to think about the origins of eugenics, that is in the 1870s and 80s, this was the moment of the worldwide Great Depression of the late 19th century. It was the era of the scramble for Africa. It was the era of massive European immigration, and not just uh, and also to the America to the Americas, but also Indian, East India, uh, East Asian, Chinese immigration uh, to the Americas as well. This was an era of extraordinary ferment and a period of extraordinary class revolt. One of the great uh, moments of labor unrest was indeed in this late 19th century period. So again, good science comes in and what does it do? It says the natural law explains the differences in the races. Mm -hmm. That is, it explains class inequality. Now, importantly for today's conversations around uh, so-called racial capitalism, there seems to be a turn to accept the uh, uh, core premise of racialism, which is that it's biological or somehow mm. essentially there, as opposed to a, uh, a weapon in the class struggle. And of course, race is profoundly scientized, or that's a terrible way, scientized. Mm. Uh, it's a terrible, uh, terrible word, um, but it's naturalized. That's the best mm -hmm, way to put mm -hmm. it. That is, yeah. it is justified um, through natural law. This is something that Raj Patel and I discuss quite a bit when we talk about how capitalism cheapens lives 
through good science. Well, then when is the next great Neo-Malthusian moment where good science comes into play? And we can quibble over this, and there's an interesting way to complexify this, but clearly in the period 1968 to 74, this is the birth of what we today call environmentalism, what I would call following Peter Deverne, the environmentalism of the rich. And its signposts are texts like Garrett Hardin, Tragedy of the Commons. Hardin, incidentally, was an avowed eugenicist. All right. Mm -hmm. Paul Ehrlich and Ann Ehrlich, who was uncredited um, in uh, authoring the book, um, announced in 1968 that the population bomb is exploding. It's basically Mm -hmm. and this isn't uh, a creative paraphrase. This is directly out of the opening page of the book. These dirty, filthy, disgusting Indians from South Asia Indians are having too many babies. And and, and I encourage everyone to go and read these pages. Um, that uh, this is a moment where a new Malthusian moment comes into existence. Thomas Robertson has written a wonderful book called The Malthusian Moment on this. But what what he doesn't highlight and what we need to understand in this moment is that this period of 1968 to 74 was the high tide of working class, anti-colonial and socialist revolution across the world. So why was it that environmentalism was brought into play at this point? And there's a long and complex story that I've begun to tell in different essays. Um, but essentially, it it uh, it radically augmented something that Jürgen Habermas identified with post-World War II politics, the scientization of politics. Essentially, what he was saying was that there is a decisive turn on the part of the bourgeoisie to render social problems and by the, by extension, ecological problems as problems of management mm-hmm. and that need good scientists, good technocrats, good technology to withdraw. So it is an anti-politics machine to cite James Ferguson's work on development. All right. So you remove the politics and you appeal to what demographic basis? Well, to the white collar workers, what mm-hmm. sometimes we call the professional managerial class, not a class but we need that concept anyway to understand the splitting of the new left and radical movements, especially in the imperialist countries. Go ahead. Sorry for that. No, no, no. I I just just, uh, Uh, want to quickly clarify. Would you say that it's not just apolitical, but it's anti-political as well? Well, it's anti-political in this precise sense. Of course, to say there's no politics to a problem or to the management of it is the most political thing possible. Mm So, uh, yeah, the pretense that there is something outside of politics is really a a PMC fantasy, Mm -hmm. because what does the PMC want above all? They want to go and manage social problems. Now, when we look at the universities and the knowledge that's produced, we have to understand that most of the social like social science disciplines like anthropology, like sociology, like geography, were about managing the dangerous classes in one or another part of the world. Sociology in America is born out of managing the savage immigrant worker who needed to be civilized or what they said in the times in the early 20th century, Americanized. Mm -hmm. So, So science is never just science. Science is not somebody working in a lab or going out to collect samples in a field and analyzing those or looking at the ice core. There is that kind of scientific research, which of course is necessary, is fundamental, is indispensable. But what we're looking at today with the Anthropocene is good science. And we, I think the left has been 
the left has failed to do something very important, which is to call out these scientists who want to blur the boundaries between what they call the geological Anthropocene and the popular Anthropocene. The popular Anthropocene mm -hmm. says, well, it all starts with the industrial revolution. It's man mm -hmm. versus nature. There's too many people. There's the wrong kind of technology, all of that. So, so the left seems to be just fine with people like Johann Rockström, the, the chief scientist at uh, Germany's Potsdam Institute, yeah. also the chief scientist for Conservation International. If your readers, uh, if your listeners aren't familiar with Conservation International, go and mm -hmm. do some Google searches with Conservation International and greenwashing. Conservation International is spearheading the financialization of nature and has been involved in the greenwashing of, I'm not kidding you, Monsanto and no Shell way. and outfits no. like this. So- my, so people like right. Rockstrom get do interviews with The Guardian. I think this was from spring of last year, uh, where he says, well, you know, we need bankers and executives, not tree huggers and, and frontier activists. That's more or less a direct <laughs> quote. Or like the, right. the tree huggers are just fine. And, and somehow um, the left, including the eco-socialists, let Rockstrom off the hook while really? he goes to Conservation International while he goes to the World Economic Forum at Davos and pals around. But doesn't that scream of lack of class analysis? Like, shouldn't they be all over that? Well, no, because his job is to fix it for the masters of the universe. That's what The mm. Economist magazine calls yeah. the World Economic Forum. His, his job is to uh, not just be a good scientist. I'm sure he is an excellent scientist. And we know this from the planetary boundaries work, which is, a fundamental contribution, but how is that planetary boundaries work um, interpreted and used? And he's very clear. He says, look, I'm not against growth. I'm within, uh, I'm for growth within abundant and safe limits. And, you know, he's saying this on a panel with Hans Vesterberg, the, the CEO of Verizon, right? So he's know, yeah. saying, you know, so, so this is how Anthropocene environmentalism, but it has a very long history often works. They mouth radical sounding phrases like Rockstrom will say the, the economic system doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But he's clearly not not advocating socialism. Yeah. There's no democracy. He's not saying capitalism, but he, but democracy is beside the point for these yeah. uh, for for uh, environmentalism. Don't think I'm um, just being polemical here. I mean, mm -hmm. if you look at the actual history of North American environmentalism and their cognates everywhere in the world, it was an ideology cooked up by scientists and a politics that was going to wage the struggle for saving nature within the courtroom. Mm -hmm. It was not a mass movement. So I don't include anti-nuclear movements. I certainly don't include environmental justice movements, which is the counter tendency to this environmentalism of the rich. So the punchline to all this is we think man versus nature or humanity and nature are innocent categories. And what I've been saying, and I know it's hard to accept because we don't want to look at the history and we're used to thinking in this way, those words connect with ideologies that drip with blood and dirt, to quote mm -hmm. Marx. And mm -hmm. there's no way around that, that, that dualism, human nature dualism in the way that we have come to understand it in the modern world is a specific intellectual architecture of civilizing projects. And the, the uh, motto of the civilizing projects, we tell this story in Seven Cheap Things, is Arbeit macht frei, from the beginning. 
Okay. Yeah. And, and so speaking of ideology, this is um, something that features in your work quite a lot. Um, I think that the, what was really interesting for me was to kind of face this idea that the use of the word nature, even, or the concept of nature is deeply political in itself. Um, I think this is something that like out of, out of everything that you write about, I feel like somehow, and it's just uh, my intuition, but th this is something that maybe the most kind of uh, novel for, for a lot of people is, is to think that man and nature aren't separate things or that that even just the word nature the conceptualization of a nature outside of man outside of society and the society outside of nature is a, a deeply political thing um i was wondering if do you think that this is something that can be overcome like i was wondering how kind of optimistic you are about the uh the our, our power to potentially overcome that division uh, in a, in a theoretical sense, an abstract sense of so people uh, be able to understand that. Well, can we organize our politics in a different way? Certainly. Yes. Emphatically. Yes. Is it possible to imagine uh, cosmologies that do not accept these bedrock basic units of man versus nature? Absolutely. That's most of human history. And so when we get into this, we want to be very clear from the outset that there is indeed a web of life. The earth wobbles on its axis. It, it uh, uh, orbits the sun. The sun's solar energy oscillates into solar minima and maxima. Volcanoes erupt. There are many, many elements of the web of life that will occur whether we are dealing with a feudal mode of production or capitalism or socialism. And uh, what some of the critics of what I say completely miss is this distinction, which I make again and again. Indeed, in probably my best known work, Capitalism and the Web of Life, I begin with who, well, the fellow we were just picking on, Johann Rockström and Planetary Boundaries. That's where I begin, which is a funny place indeed for a so-called social constructionist to begin. So there is a web of life, uh, key elements of which many of them will uh, uh, operate whether or not we have capitalism or socialism or a green authoritarian um, civilization. That said, this invention ideologically of a zone of nature and a zone of humanity with civilization, so with the managers, with the scientists, with the thinkers in charge of managing and rationalizing uh, and governing the the uh, uh, human man human nature conflict that's a thoroughly modern point of view and we can get into it more but i just want to foreground this it's not just ideology when we say ideology it, it has a feeling like it's floating in the ether somewhere mm -hmm. right you and call when it say ideology even. right ideologies do not have lives yeah. of their own ideologies yeah, yeah. are uh, um, uh, developed and cultivated, not just by ruling classes, but every ruling class, not just capitalism, creates a special class of intellect workers mm -hmm. who go and produce the, the justifying, legitimating ideologies of the time. Some In some class societies, they're priests. In this society, there are various kinds of ideologists, including um, scientists. 
Not all scientists, but that's that's one of the elements of this. And of course, many kinds of philosophers and bureaucrats. This uh, speaks to the great point uh, of Noam Chomsky's from over many decades that the intellectual class is fundamental to how the status quo works. The more educated mm -hmm. you are, the more indoctrinated you are. But in any event, what we need to understand is that these are not just ideologies floating in the ether. They are practical guides to imperial rule and world-class formation. And I just, I'm just gonna throw out a string which will immediately make this clear. So from the beginning, there were the divides of Christian and unchristian, civilized and uncivilized. In the 20th century, developed and undeveloped. Today, I would suggest as a tendency, sustainable and unsustainable. Who are the unsustainable? Who are the unsustainables? Well, I would submit they are uh, largely those whom Hillary Clinton called in 2016, the deplorables. They are the, the laboring and working classes, paid and unpaid of the world, who are unable to grasp the imperatives of whatever is the flavor of the month, compulsory veganism or degrowth or whatever. And I'm not trying to, to, to tar any of those uh, elements. I'm simply pointing out that the civilizing project in its binary of savagery, that is nature and civilization, has been there from the, the present and is crucial to doing what? Well, it's stuck around for so long, not because capitalism runs off domination. It doesn't. It uses domination to a particular end, which is to advance the rate of profit and open up more profit-making opportunities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you, you've come to really criticize that Cartesian moment of the kind of, I guess, the binary thinking, especially, which um, I remember was quite a big part of Foucault's um, thinking as well. I think I remember in one of his um, lectures that he did, talking about the kind of blaming Descartes for the fall uh, for a kind of way that the philosophy, uh, the fall of philosophy, in, between the know yourself and care for yourself, that sort of stuff. So it's it's definitely something that I, that kind of uh, not not this. I don't know. I don't know how to, to qualify it, but, but kind of disdain of some kind for the, that Cartesian moment. Even though I know you still call him a great philosopher, it seems like you'd potentially put some blame onto that for, for that divide in some ways. Well, I think when we look at the work of any important thinker, we're going to find nuance and complexity. And so when I talk about a Cartesian revolution after René Descartes, who, by the way, we think of him as French, but really he wrote his greatest works in the Dutch Republic, the model capitalist nation of the 17th century, the great superpower of the times, believe it or not, which was also, and this is not a footnote, in the very worst of the Little Ice Age. You with me so far? And it's not yep. just Descartes. The Cartesian Revolution includes, as probably some of your listeners know, people like Francis Bacon, John Locke. Uh, who wrote, for instance, the, the Constitution for the Carolinas at the end of the 17th century, which, amongst other things, forbade indigenous peoples from entering into contracts with English settlers. Why? Because indigenous peoples lived in a state of nature. Why is that important? Well, as we know from Locke, people who lived in a state of nature could not improve the land, that is, develop the land in a capitalist fashion. See this string of causation here. But mm -hmm. with Descartes, importantly, uh, I remember somebody said, well, you talk all about Descartes, but what about Spinoza or Leibniz <laughs> or all these other people? And they said, you know, look, I'm not talking about Descartes as a philosopher, but as a kind of stand in for a whole intellectual, mm -hmm. cultural revolution. And it's not just about the separation of 
society and nature. That's an element of it. It is also about the domination of nature. In Descartes' words, we must make ourselves the masters and possessors of nature. But more than that, I think maybe at the root is something that scholars of working class history and the sociology of labor will know well from Harry Braverman, that at the core of Descartes' fundamental formulation is a thinking essence and a doing essence. And that is the core of every boss, every capitalist who needs to figure out how to organize the labor process to advance the production of relative surplus value. That's exactly what was going on in this moment. And until socialists begin to understand that the concepts of nature are rooted fundamentally in the control of work, we are never going to be able to forge the kinds of internationalist alliances that we need against the dictatorship of capital. Yeah. And I I, I just like to say that, like, I really like and think it's valuable in how you draw upon Gramsci in, in your analysis. And I'd, I'd really like to get a little bit more into that. Um, so just starting with a historical question, and I, um, I, I guess this this could be quite uh, this could take a long time, but you know we, we could just try and t- try and do it quite quickly. Is um, sort of when at what point did the um, Anthropocene become a popular idea, and sort of what is it about the Anthropocene that is is appealing? What what draws what draws people to it? Like yeah sort of what does it make certain promises or does it sort of yeah promise certain ways of life or living that people find appealing like yeah what what draws people to it you know i'd like to hear your thoughts on this too but let me just share an observation (laughs) one of the things that i hear even today is oh hardly anybody knows what the anthropocene is and i think that's actually true if you look at you know 80 percent of the population like Anthropocene, okay, maybe maybe I saw it in a newspaper or uh, came across it on YouTube or something, but it doesn't register. For whom does it register? And the answer is very clear for the professional managerial stratum. Uh, so what is the Anthropocene, and especially for the So what does the professoriate want? It wants concepts that uh, are distinctive, are fashionable, are trendy, Uh, that might sound, they can sound very radical, but don't actually name the system and don't actually call for any fundamental changes in power, profit, and life. And so one of the things that we need to remember about Gramsci is that uh, who, you know, for your listeners, and, and Jamie, please correct me if I've got some of the nuances wrong, but essentially Gramsci is pointing out the ruling classes rule through cross-class alliances that he calls historic blocks or hegemonic blocks. And the crucial alliance within any hegemonic block in the modern world is not between the ruling class and the working class, is between the ruling class and their version of a professional managerial class, petty small shopkeepers, lawyers, accountants, uh, engineers, professors. Can you bring those people on board into a common uh, political project that promises, that expresses their general interest? Because of course, all uh, hegemonic ideologies are fraudulent. They they have to have a kernel of truth to them, but uh, the the legitimating ideologies of, of Christianizing and civilizing projects were very attractive, not to the peasants and workers of certain European countries, but to intellect workers 
and uh, the white collar workers of their eras. And they were, these are the people who produce the fetishes that sustain any hegemonic ideology. So part of what I'm saying is you can pick up on is that the wine remains the same, the bottles get changed out every so often. So you still have a man, nature, civilization, trinity, if you will. And just to underline the point too, these are not mere words, although the, all three of those words assume their modern meaning between 1550 and 1700 in English and other languages. So it's not like this is somehow separate from ideology. These are in many ways fundamental to, uh, to bourgeois ideology in every successive era. And, and it's very important that we pick up on that. So Gramsci is very important for helping us understand how intellect workers in particular have become aligned with an anti-politics of what I would call green planetary management. Yeah, I um, I want to ask about, so the, you know, we, we've discussed a little bit the Anthropocene now, and and I think you were right to say that um, the majority of people haven't heard of it, but I think it maybe shows up also in ways like, you know, human-induced climate change, for example, mm -hmm. and, and things like that in the more sneakier kind of ways. Uh, but something that I really appreciate in one of your kind of bigger, I think, contributions um, is the thesis of the capitalocene. So the, the concept of the capitalocene, which is at its heart, a reminder that capitalism is not just an economic system, right? But why is it that it seems so difficult to overcome this notion uh, that's so deeply rooted in our modern times that capitalism is an economic system. It's just pure economics, nothing else. It's money, markets, etc. Um, do you think that this effect of capitalism being entrenched uh, as a notion of, of like, of, as a scientific notion of, of economics, do you think that that in itself is also a symptom of like uh, capitalism trying to survive by kind of morphing and, um, its ability to kind of capture and survive, you know, off of its opponents and, and off of its uh, its situation. I don't know if you, if you think that's kind of what's happening. Yeah, that's very well suited. And as, as many brilliant political scholars, I think of Ellen Mikesons Woods and many others who have emphasized the separation of the political and the economic in the history of capitalism, uh, she and others are, of course, indicting this ideological separation between the political and economic, because as we all know, Capitalism is a system of political accumulation. Mm -hmm. And almost everything that capitalists need for a good business environment, they can't produce for themselves. They can't secure for themselves. They need states and courts and armies and police to enforce at every turn. Mm -hmm. And if you notice, and there's this very, very interesting thing going on where uh, for for Marxists, and I think for British Marxists in particular, the ideological separation of the political and the economic is really the stock and trade. And yet they can't wrap their minds around uh, where it comes from, which is the uh, practical dualism, this ruling abstraction of nature versus civilization, right? Mm -hmm. Which is not, of course, a material separation, but an ideological project. And so, so it's very interesting to see how the, I think the, the ossification of certain intellectual tendencies reinforced by 
bourgeois ideology, which wants to fragment everything, then leads to an inability to see parallels. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and it's 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 quite it's quite striking. So I made the the this kind of point many times. But let me say this. So there are two, you're absolutely right to highlight what's called the critique of economism. That is a critique of economic reductionism. Mm -hmm. And somebody like Andreas Malm and I, who have very different renderings of the capitalist scene thesis, the age of capital, are both actually saying the same thing. We are both uh, critics of economism, of this notion of capitalism as an economic system. We are both saying that at the beating heart of the climate crisis is a class politics and a class war. Now we have different conceptions of that, but that's a very, very important point. Why is it important? Why is it hard to overcome? I think this is not often brought up, but let's go back to Descartes and the mind-body separation. We know that's not true. One of the, one of the fascinating um, outcomes of research into say conspiracy theories, why do people believe crazy conspiracy theories uh, is that at a certain point, there's a kind of uh, uh, neuroplastic lock in the brain mm -hmm. where you get wired to only accept the information that fits within certain categories, which correspond to the physiology of the brain. It doesn't mean you can't change your mind. It doesn't mean that you can't use neuroplasticity to change. But let's remember from the time we are children, we are taught that we live in an economic system that is separate from a, from democracy. And if we hear the word capitalism, um, it's very fuzzy. Unless we grow up either in a very right-wing neoclassical home, the Thatcherite home, or a, uh, a left-wing socialist anarchist home, we're not going to hear people talk about capitalism as a system of mm -hmm. power. And certainly, we're not going to hear even if you grow, especially if you grow up in an environmentalist home, you're not going to hear about capitalism as a way of organizing the web of life. <laughs> and so, so uh, David Harvey has this great riff on capitalism as the fra factory of fragmentation, yeah, that yeah. capitalism teaches us to worship the fragments, he says. And that's exactly what we're talking about. Now, what you hear me doing, and I'm gonna do this with the category of the economy, we know this, especially through the work of Timothy Mitchell in Carbon Democracy, that the category of the economy comes out of John Maynard Keynes' work in the India Home Office uh, right after World War uh, I, right? So the, Indian the India Home Office succeeds the East India Company. This yeah, is yeah. a matter of empire. And that national accounting systems and the economy only becomes uh, an ideological pillar after World War II in its, in its familiar way. And what does that tell us? We need to know the history of these categories and how they came to be. What it tells us is that after World War II, there was a huge problem faced by the imperialist countries, how to govern a world that was no longer under formal colonial rule. How do you rule mm -hmm. a world of formally sovereign states? Well, one of the ways you do it is you create national accounting systems, and then you can uh, basically scientize the whole problem, right? This, uh, mm -hmm. this eventually becomes the IMF and World Bank and the Washington Consensus. And you have Larry Summers, um, the former chief economist for the World yeah. Bank, saying the laws of economics are like the laws of engineering. One set works everywhere. Yeah, and th and then I guess like some uh, some authors have written like I know uh, Alexander Dunlap is, uh, has as well on like self management as a fourth step of colonialism of of like the colonized begin to self manage because they've been 
they've been so ingrained into the system that they they I don't know I guess it becomes it becomes a second nature of sorts that they feel that they you know I, I see this for example in my native country of Tunisia where uh, we are having a huge political crisis at the moment a new constitutional referendum etc and and there are these ideas that seem to keep popping up of like the impossibility of managing an Arab country or like of democratizing an Arab country by Arabs. Like my family who are Arabs, who are Tunisian, have this idea, this like self in, like taught idea that Arabs can't deal with democracy. And it's like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's not even neo-colonialist. It's just the colonialist like enterprise that has completely i don't know taken out this uh these these values out of their their minds that, that we are also human and we can also uh deal with our own you know things no no we must have the scientists uh technocratic class most of which come from europe or have been taught in europe or have trained in europe uh to manage our affairs otherwise it's just going to end up in violence and, and disruption etc never mind well, that tunisia had been self-managing yeah. for long, 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 long time. <laughs> I mean, we're back to Gramsci, right? You have a PMC ruling class, historic block, hegemonic block, that then can uh, preside and manage all the savages, all those unruly Arabs who don't know how to do democracy. Maybe someday they'll learn, but we're not sure. Uh, this kind of series of, of racist and civilizational tropes. Uh, I just have to name drop for for now, Hassan Hodges is environmentalism, uh, uh, is racism an environmental threat, where he specifically invokes this orientalist, civilizational, Islamophobic dynamic um, mm -hmm. that, uh, that I think you would really enjoy. So I would just add mm -hmm. to that phrase, decolonize, that fundamentally, this is a class dynamic. And okay. yes, okay. under colonial rule or neocolonial rule, that inflects the class dynamic. But this self-exploitation, self-management dynamic is a textbook Cartesian class PMC dynamic. And it's always mm -hmm. the white collars and those who want to ascend into the upper ranks of the professional managerial class who are the most um, self-managed, right? We call them driven. We call them ambitious. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and they call them hardworking. We give them representation. And then <laughs> right, right, right. And there's, right. So there's all these other sort of Gramscian inflections. And this is what I talk about when I say the law of value is not just about economics. It is a law of value in an ethico-political sense. That is precisely what Gramsci highlights. Yeah. And just on, on this sort of general question of uh, political structure, uh, because I, I'd really like to ask how, how it, how is it politically sustainable to um for so so for those in power who generally might buy and the professional class as well who generally buy into maybe this more man versus nature or more um i'll just say more into the anthropocene um if we're if we're taking that what is the public's role in all of this and you were saying earlier that you know the public's understanding if you grow up in a capitalist state you're likely to have sort of a fuzzy or fragmented understanding of capitalism. So they themselves aren't necessarily buying into the Anthropocene. Um, I mean, is that is that how you would explain it, that this, is, this system is politically sustainable, basically just through a general confusion of the public towards, towards issues like this? Um, I think in part. 
I think for the vast majority, if you look at the UK, you look at the US, many other states uh, amongst the rich club of, of countries, popular sentiment is overwhelmingly in favor of universal health care, of climate justice mm. programs, of uh, you know rebuilding the city so that they're livable, uh, you know, all of these um, sort of progressive planks. And I say progressive because we're not yet at a point of socialist consciousness in a very specific sense, that is of advancing working class democracy and workers' power in yeah. particular. We're seeing some glimpses of it around the world. So I'm hopeful. But if we look at the history of neoliberalism, it is very much one of this hegemonic alliance between professional managerial classes, say the top, let's say top 10 to 20% of the population in terms of income and affluence and all this, many of them are in a strict sense proletarians. Let's let's make that clear. And a number of them in successive economic crises are being thrown out of the, the white collar into the dirty white collar, pink collar, blue collar, uh, the so-called real working class. Um, so we see this again and again. We've been seeing this, in fact, for a very, very long time. In fact, since people like C. Wright Mills began writing about it uh, 70 years ago. So there's this alliance between this affluent white collar back to brunch crowd. Uh, that's a reference to the Trump election. And like if Trump wasn't president and Clinton was president, I would be, be at the brunch. <laughs> right. Um, as if uh, uh, Clinton was not one of the most horrific and dangerous warmongers of her times. And. That speaks to the essence of what we're looking at. And, and Jamie, I think it speaks to your question, but but tell me more that there's this alliance at the top, sort of between the top 1%, if you will, and then the next 10, 15, 20% of the population. It changes from country to country and from uh, poor and rich countries and, and all of that. And what's what's the strategy for everyone else? Well, in the US, I think the US is a paradigm case, is absolutely smash the power of labor. Uh, 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 undermine and constrict democracy and the right to vote, uh, build out a massive garrison state of security guards and cops and prisons, uh, militarize the borders, and then engage in one of the most long-running and aggressive foreign policies of, of regime change politics that the modern world has ever known. I mean, how many wars mm -hmm. is the U.S., fighting right mm -hmm. now. One, uh, Ukraine, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, uh, uh, Sahara. Um, you know, where, where do we stop? I mean, there, there's more beyond this. It is very much the spirit of uh, Elon Musk. We will coup whoever we want. And just <laughs> to make the point clear, Elon Musk is saying this in relation to lithium batteries and Bolivia's Bolivia. lithium yeah. deposits. What did the U.S. do? It moved in and overthrew the Moss government, the Morales' duly elected government, and have since been voted out. But we all know the history of that, that that threat is there again and again and again. So, Jamie, I think part of the answer has to be this scorched earth policy to under towards directed towards undermining working class power. And uh, that's and meanwhile, meanwhile, places like the UK, Western Europe, North America, until the past three or four years, real incomes for the PMC were growing. And demographically, the class was growing enough, growing modestly. Mm -hmm. Now it stopped growing 
And mm-hmm. now it's not it's, it's experiencing contracting incomes, not rising incomes. So there, I think we need a little bit of political economy, a little bit of cultural hegemony, and a little bit of old-fashioned militarized accumulation to explain what's going on. Mm-hmm. I want to... Okay, we, we, we've, I feel like we've stayed a little bit uh, like quite accessible so far, but I want to complexify this, the conversation a little bit Great. Um, by talking about a term that comes up in a lot of your writing, um, which I guess you're familiar with, so it might not seem too complicated for you, but that's world ecology. Um, I have to admit, I did have a slight hard time understanding uh, exactly like the the confines of world ecology like i i understand what you mean by it but the limits of the concept and its kind of clear uses seemed a little bit uh murky for me personally um but again i haven't read all of your work on it um i was wondering how like if you could give us a definition of it and you tell us kind of what you mean when you use it and how it differs from some of the other terms that exist out there that could be thought to be synonymous with it or or like somewhat related? Well, we're always looking for friends and allies. So if you can think of some, that's great. World ecology does not mean the ecology of the world. World ecology is a, an, is a paradigm. So the, it's not a concept like capitalism or imperialism. It is a way of naming an emergent uh, tradition of uh, scholars, activists, and artists who are doing several things at once. One is to transcend the man versus nature binary in the most transgressive and radical ways possible. All right, so there are some other traditions, post-structuralist like assemblage uh, and uh, new materialism and other um, traditions that say they're doing that, but they do it only on a philosophical and epistemological terrain. They don't do it on an ideological terrain, and they they refuse to deal with the questions of history. In fact, they cannot deal with the history question of history because at the end of the day, those alternatives, assemblage, new materialisms, they are in the final analysis what I would call a democratic theory of causation. Everything is connected to everything. Everything causes everything, which defaults to what? To empiricism. Right. And I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but again, a little intellectual history goes a very long way. Empiricism is the phil- the, the philosophical uh, 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 vogue, if you will, of the 17th century associated with who? People like Francis Bacon and John Locke. And, mm-hmm. and this is very much the philosophy that is consistent with the era of primitive accumulation and the slave trade and settler colonialism. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to reckon with that because they don't want to look at, at the historical questions, either in terms of political economy or in terms of ideology. All right. So world ecology connects to uh, and builds out an older tradition of dialectical Marxism and what's called the philosophy of internal relations, which doesn't say literally everything is internal, but is a way of thinking that is relentlessly connective and completely curious about the, the relevant connections that make the world in which we inhabit. That world today, of course, is the world of capitalism. Before that, that was a class society. So world ecology names a philosophical position and a methodological repertoire that is about connecting and then narrating. Mm-hmm. And that narrating means to tell the story of something. Mm-hmm. 
This is, I think, one of the greatest weaknesses of the left today, and especially of radical scholarship. Radical scholars want to go to war over what is rather than how did it come to be. Right. Okay. Uh, and so this is uh, this is one of the things that the capitalocene thesis, age of capital thesis, does is it's not a theory. I mean, it offers something that looks like theory, but the theory totally and completely serves the historical narrative, and it asks. When did the turning points occur? How did they occur? Mm -hmm. How did capitalism emerge? How was it related to uh, the rest of life? Um, and where do we see the turning points and what are the patterns we see over historical time? Incidentally, if people are really curious, go to academia.edu and put in world ecology with a hyphen and you'll see hundreds of books and articles mm -hmm. uh, that yeah. are experimenting with this. It is what I call, I think in the opening page again of Capitalism in the Web of Life, a conversation. It's not a metaphysic. It's a philosophy of history that draws rather directly and explicitly on Marx and Engels. It is an argument about dialectical method. And it's an argument, here we go to Gramsci, Gramsci, instead of Marxism, he couldn't say Marx because of the present censors. Yeah. He had to say the philosophy of praxis. And I think we should take, actually take that seriously, that for Marx and for Gramsci, dialectics is not only method, it's praxis. And it allows us to go beyond the realm of appearances to construct large scale, long run totalities, call them civilizations, call them class societies, call them empires, call them capitalism, whatever it is, those totalities are not there before the fact. This is what all the post-structuralists say, oh, you're totalizing everything. And that's the most deliberate uh, dishonesty I can imagine because for Marx and the dialectical tradition, the point of view of totality is a methodological procedure that says we need to explore all the constitutive elements. So uh, um, Skander, you rightly asked like, well, what does it allow? Well, let me just give you the briefest snapshot of what it allows. What it allows is for us to go from capitalism as an economic system to capitalism as a social and spatial system to capitalism as a way of organizing the relations between humans and the rest of nature. The web of life. Yeah. yeah, and in within the web of life. So humans are part of the web of life too. Mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. reaction, this interrelation here is a web of life. But then let me, let me draw it one step further. We have very much concern, righteously so, over racism, sexism, class, empire. How do we put these together? Well, for instance, what I point out is that the dominant conception of ideology rests upon an uppercase and nature and a domination of nature perspective that directly, practically, concretely feeds into the drawing of the world color line and globalizing patriarchy after 1550. That mm -hmm. is very concrete. It is juridical. So it is about law. It's cultural. It's, so it's about ideology, it's economic because it's about cheapening the lives and labors in the interest of advancing the rate of profit. And so there are many other fields in the world that do some part of that. But world ecology, because it is relentlessly curious and connective in a dialectical way, which is mm -hmm. not this kind of bullshit flattening of everything and everything is connected to everything else. It's dialectics have a, has a real procedure for, for understanding hierarchies and how those hierarchies are transcended, that it allows us to connect method, ideology, and political praxis. Okay, yeah. And follow-up questions more than welcome. So this is our paradigm. Whether or not people still use huh. it in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, 
I don't care. What I care is that we are engaged in this project of intellectual disobedience within the world university system, which mm -hmm. is hell bent on manufacturing our consent. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just using that to look into the future, you, you have stated that the climate crisis is a moment of revolutionary possibility. And given our discussion today, that's sort of even more interesting to me now because um, uh, earlier you were drawing quite heavy emphasis on the on the quite um, military forces that in, in, in the instance you said that the US employs to sort of keep the general public or the working class uh, in check. So I'd sort of say, like, I'd like to ask, how is this the case that the climate crisis is a moment of revolutionary possibility? And what does this reveal about these very, I want to say material military um, forces that the state uh, uses to defend itself and the ruling class uses to defend itself? It's a fantastic question. And I'm going to give you answers that might feel schematic. There's a lot more that go, there's a lot of complexity that folks can go to my website, jasonwmore.com and read up on this or that element. But let's just point out one element of it, which is a kind of quantitative moment that essentially what the climate crisis today represents is a suppression of the underlying basis of everything under capitalism, which is the agricultural revolution model. So uh, climate change comes in, it suppresses yield productivity. Ortiz Bobea and her colleagues in the journal Nature Science, uh, Nature Climate Change, estimate eight years of lost productivity uh, so far. That's significant because the whole system, right, is based on the agricultural productivity that sets workers free uh, from the land, allows them to become proletarians, and this upward spiral of economic growth over the centuries. So the underlying basis of, of capital accumulation is now stagnating. And when the economic surplus ceases to grow, you have increasing conflicts, both class conflicts, but as we're seeing, inter-imperialist conflicts as well. This is the, the case, of course, with the Russia-China bloc and the NATO proxy war in Ukraine. That's what, at the end of the day, uh, is underpinning it all. Is there more going on? Yes, for sure. All right. So the question about political possibility is raised by looking at the history of climate and class society. This goes all the way back to the Bronze Age crisis right around the year 1200 BCE. There's some quibbling over when exactly because, well, it was a long time ago and there aren't written records. Uh, but what we see uh, there plausibly and then clearly in the crisis of the Roman West, again, in the crisis of feudalism in the 14th century, is that significantly unfavorable climate shifts coincide, and yes, causation is not correlation, all right, but coincide with moments of civilizational crisis that are economic, that are sociological mm -hmm. in the sense of class revolt, that are military, uh, and the 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 more and the West uh, Western Rome, for instance, collapses where Eastern Rome doesn't because they experience the the sharpest climate change in the Levant. You have drought, but you don't have the kinds of severe winters and extremely cool growing seasons you do uh, in say Northern France. And this cycle would repeat itself, not, not anthropogenic um, in any way, but the cycle would repeat itself a thousand years later in the crisis of feudal Europe, where climate, class revolt, disease, uh, all came together in a perfect storm. The ruling mm -hmm. classes were defeated, which is ultimately why we get the drive into the Atlantic. So again, 
a moment, actually, the, the crisis of feudalism is a moment where the ruling classes were actually defeated. They tried very, very hard to reimpose feudalism and were unsuccessful. So they ended up going to war with each other. Let that be a cautionary tale for our <laughs> times. Um, but then again, the first capitalogenic, I'm not going to use the phrase anthropogenic made by human because I think it's particularly offensive in this regard. The first capitalogenic climate crisis uh, was um, the, the worst of the Little Ice Age, what I call the long cold 17th century. And the uh, what the geographers Lewis and Maslin called the Orbis Spike was very fundamental. And that might sound academic, don't worry, it's not. It was basically because of the slaving induced genocide in the Americas, uh, there was a drop of 95% uh, of the population. About 50 million people were killed off and not purely biological. It was related very, very intimately to slaving. And yeah, I remember you quoting Beyond Germs, fantastic book. Yes, yes. So, so fundamentally important. This is not a, a biological accident. And so what happened because 50 million people died, soils were left undisturbed, forests grew back, and they soaked in all of this carbon, which contributed to volcanic activity, a shift in the North Atlantic Oscillation, and other natural forcing uh, movements to produce this severe climate crisis in the 17th century. That was long recognized by historians as the crisis of the 17th century. Now we understand, thanks to Jeff Parker and many others, that it was a climate crisis as mm. well. And it was a moment of real political possibility. This is the moment of the uh, the levelers and essentially proto-communists in the English um, uh, uh, revolution where they cut off the head of the king, which is in my view, pretty much always a good thing. And uh, <laughs> I, this was a moment of real political possibility. Then again, at the very last cold snap of the Little Ice Age between the 1780s and 1820, you have all of this revolutionary ferment of the French, Haitian, American revolutions. Um, the English countryside is essentially an open class revolt against high bread prices. Um, there's all of the all of this ferment. So mm -hmm. there's a lesson, not that revolution is inevitable. Well, in a sense, revolution is inevitable because the ruling classes will lead capitalism into a post-capitalist authoritarian order. And mm -hmm. they're already planning that. Go read The Great Reset and look into that if you're curious. I don't mean you two, maybe you have, but your uh, audience. This is a techno-scientific totalitarian project, in my, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, so revolution is coming one way or the other. Will it be a socialist revolution? Will it be a revolution of what I call the planetary proletariat of the proletariat, femetariat, and bioterriot? Mm -hmm. That remains to be seen. So, so we have, I, I think, and then just to cap this conversation, essentially what we have to do is to understand that the climate conditions and climate fixing strategies of a civilization are deeply rooted and they can't just change when the climate changes in a very, very dramatic way. And that's mm -hmm. also what we saw. So feudal Europe forms during the medieval warm period. And once those climate conditions change, it's it's like this. Climate is not everything. It doesn't drive anything. That's a fetish. But it's in everything. It's in the agriculture. It's in the class structure. It's in the culture. It's in the village life. It's in everything. And so when that changes, it's like uh, uh, a strand of the DNA that you're just pulling out. And then yeah, the, whole, yeah. the whole structure changes. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about um, accessibility, and I, I remember seeing a passage on this in your discussion with the was it the New Socialist? Um, would you agree that there's 
a certain rift of sorts between academia or more specifically leftist, socialist, kind of Marxist academia and the public. And I wonder how much you think our focus on this constant, or I don't know, what seems to me like a constant complexification and uh, like a focus on terminology and concepts and things, how much do you think that kind of plays a role in that potential rift? And I wonder what you think about uh, how to bridge uh, that that divide or, yeah, I, I guess in, in your interview, I saw that you mentioned uh, Chomsky and the whole stay in your lane kind of mentality uh, and how that helps power. Um, but from my experience, I do think that there is still, like, I, I understand that, but I still, I think there is still an undeniable rift between the public and academia, between these really, really important discussions uh, to be have to be had, and the public's, I guess, unfamiliarity with them. Um, and I guess, you know, this is part of the reason why we do this podcast, for example, is to, to try and kind of familiarize and popularize and uh, these these academic ideas, but I was wondering if you have a kind of prescription for for this problem, or if you see well, it I as think a problem. There, there are th three or four, probably more than that, three or four major dimensions to what you're talking about. One is that there are many self-identified leftists who are not only in the academy, but also of the academy, mm -hmm. and there are many there are many people who refuse to see what Mario Savio in the 60s, what E.P. Thompson, the great Marxist historian of, of the working class saw in, in uh, the 70s in Warwick Incorporated, that the universities are corporations, they are knowledge factories, mm -hmm. and their role in society is to reproduce uh, a sufficiently skilled and sufficiently passive working class, especially a professional managerial class. So there are real obstacles there. If you uh, break with the disciplines, both the specific disciplines, um, uh, philosophy, geography, economics, whatever, uh, they'll make you pay. And if you break with the, you know, the disciplines of academia, they'll make you pay as well. So let's remember that, that professors are workers too. Yeah, some, some have gigantic uh, European Research Council grants or NSF grants, and they're effectively managers as well. That does impact their consciousness. It lends them what Eric Olin Wright once called a contradictory class position. Okay, mm -hmm. um, so there are those dynamics that are going on. Uh, there's also uh, the reality that, uh, um, you know, while uh, I'm talking with you here, uh, some imperialist uh, intellectual like, I don't know, Niall Ferguson, you know, at Harvard can get on CNN. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. Not that anyone watches CNN anymore, but that's a different <laughs> I question. like to so, think we're bigger. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you, you, yeah. These days you probably do have more uh, listeners and, and viewers than than CNN. Uh, uh, happily, Brian Stelter just got fired. So sometimes uh, good things, good things happen, happen uh, uh, in the world. But in any event, there's a whole dynamic of manufacturing consent, which is not mm. only about media access, but it also goes to Chomsky and Herman's great point about concision. And it's basically this, that if I want to speak in the language of the ruling class, and we talked about economic reductionism, if I want to talk about capitalism as an economic system, um, then I can do that. 
Um, but, but to bring it all together as a system of class power, as a system of capital accumulation, as a way of organizing webs of life, that those are dangerous ideas and they're treated as such. And, you know, happily living in the United States of America, I'll just be marginalized. I'm not going to uh, be killed for uh, saying it or mm-hmm. jailed uh, for the trouble. Now, uh, so there are a great many disincentives to intellectuals who want to speak to broader publics mm-hmm. unless they want to speak in the received language. And yeah. no matter how many times we're reminded, we have Albert Einstein, the thinking that created the problem, won't solve it. We have Audre Lorde. You can't, uh, you can't take apart the master's house with the master's tools. She says it better. Uh, you know, we we know that it's not, I mean, it, the language of the rulers is inadequate for doing what we need to do. And liberation movements have always recognized that. I mean, it's quite stunning when we have self-styled eco-socialists who are public intellectuals saying, oh, let's not quibble with language. I'm thinking, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> that is what, that's what socialists have done. That's what feminists have done. That's what civil rights movements have done. That's what anti-imperialist movements have done. What do they say? They say the language of the rulers is a language mm. of oppression. And more than that, it's mm. connected to the praxis of oppression and exploitation, the ways that language and ideology and power are intimately tied to each other. And so the question of accessibility is quite challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the funny thing about the particular people who say this about me are people like John Bellamy Foster, who I actually have a lot of admiration for. And I will tell you straight up, I've sold more books than he has. <laughs> so, I mean, don't, yeah. don't kid yourself. I, I, uh, I mean, I, I wasn't, to be honest, I, I wasn't uh, specifically talking about you. I, I meant more like the general academic sphere, because I, I really, I, I can't get out of this, like, mm, this view that the academia seems so focused on you know on fighting over words and like you said it is very important like you said the language of the oppressor but sometimes it feels like that comes at the cost of translating it into action or into the real well what's the what's the example because i think you may be thinking of some people i might be thinking about some people but we might not be on the same page because jamie um, skander do you I, I'm I'm not thinking of any like real like specific people. I guess it's more just in my years of reading academia and and looking at the kind of different debates over like one word or another. And and like you said, it's true that for example, how we define the problem is how we react to it. So it's important, for example, let's say to understand where Anthropocene comes from. The, that word has so much power. Um, but I guess I'm wondering how that. Uh, kind of, for example, the debate over the Anthropocene as a word even uh, translates into like real kind of real life action and change. Well, I think quite explicitly. Um, I wrote a piece called Beyond Climate Justice and have been ex- and other people have written quite, quite well on this. If your starting point is man versus nature, you know exactly what kind of politics you're going to get. You're not going to get environmental justice politics of any kind. Mm-hmm. And uh, that because... Uh, not just because environmental justice is drawn deeply on indigenous traditions, that's one very important source of uh, inspiration, but also because environmental justice draws on working class traditions like the anti-toxics movement pioneered by Lois Gibbs in the United States, 
or other forms of labor environmental alliances like um, working class organizing in Louisiana's Cancer Alley. When you have a class conception of socio-ecological relations, then what do you do? You begin to organize for class power because at the end of the day, that's the only thing that delivers meaningful results. Otherwise, you end up with what happened in the United States, which is, okay, let's pass all these environmental laws and um, then export all the dirty uh, industries to, as, as Trump said, the shithole countries. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, and that's, and I say that to make us uncomfortable, but also to realize that's not my view. That's the view of the environmentalism of the rich, even if they dress it up in equity and all this other stuff. They don't believe it. So when you're asking about the real world political implications, I would say that if you have a class analysis, which nobody out, I mean, there are a few independent scholars, but basically mm-hmm. neoliberalism has destroyed the ground for independent scholars and independent journalists with some mm-hmm. valiant exceptions uh, that I'm sure we could name that, that we need to uh, cultivate those class politics as class analyses in an open-ended way, in an internationalist way, in an anti-imperialist way, so that we can inform real political movements um, mm-hmm. moving forward. And I think we, I can think of a lot of fields where it's exactly as you described, Skander, because a lot of what's a lot of academics just want to quibble over little things. It's just a job to them. Uh, but I think for that's, politically I guess committed, that's what I was yeah. kind of getting at is that yeah. for a lot of people, this is just a way to, you know, have a paycheck, have a house, have a job, right. social security. And and like whether or not their work translates into real world effect, whether it affects, you know, the Joe over there in the factory is like doesn't really but seem to But it does have a real a world effect. I think I don't think you're arguing with I think we agree, but it yeah, does. Yeah, yeah. But let's not say it doesn't have a real world effect. I mean, universities in certainly the rich countries mm-hmm. are some of the most dynamic uh, economic powerhouses of the system, not to mention the ideological matrix for uh, achieving hegemony. So they do have an effect. And when you have professors who treat um, the climate crisis as uh, just another, just a set of tasks they perform, like, oh, yeah, I study climate change and I do this and I do that, um, but they're not committed to speaking out. And some of them can't speak out. If you're yeah. in the United States and you don't have tenure, you cannot speak out in any, you know, you cannot do things like that. You, in the United States, you cannot write yeah. books with inflammatory topics uh, uh, like some of my European colleagues uh, have done. And, uh, you, you know, there are real constraints to what's going on. So that is in itself that that the way that the knowledge factory works is to manufacture consent in in real world ways and precisely the ways you're lamenting, that is, mm-hmm. how do I say, it's not a defect of the system. That's how it's supposed to work. It's not, it's, a, <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a trick. It's not a bug. So, so a I guess the, the problem is more how do we turn that into a positive effect rather than, you know, academics, like you said, uh, potentially fighting over small words or, or even like trying to get the most uh, um, citations and, and this sort of things. Um, because uh, I, I don't know it. I guess I know I feel, and I don't want to name drop too many people, but like I feel like I've I've gotten to know quite a few academics over the years who have felt quite desperate about the state of academia and also about the impact that they have on the world. Uh, the kind of how their work and their efforts often 
tremendous efforts, some often like an insane amount of work and time and energy spent uh, fighting against the system and writing and researching. And I guess it's sometimes difficult for them to, f- to see the real world effects of their work, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, we've been living through half a century of American regime change politics and the d- smashing of working class power and the gutting of the universities, the radical neoliberalizing of the universities, uh, the hardening of disciplinary boundaries, all of which, yes, it has been an era of the long defeat of the world proletariat and other working classes around the world. Uh, it's not the first such one. Let's remember that after that, that uh, the period really, let's say conservatively between 1810 or 1820 and 1870 in Britain was one of the long defeat of the proletariat. The standards of living for the, for English workers don't begin to improve from extraordinarily immiserated levels until after 1870. So this is not uncommon in the history of capitalism to go through such a long defeat of the proletarian forces. That's ultimately what's going on. I mean, if you went back to Britain in the 1970s, say when Uh, uh, the Wilson government comes into power in 1974 on the most radical uh, social democratic platform in the 20th century, uh, lots of labor unrest. You had a, a minister of industry, Tony Benn, who wanted not only to extend nationalization, but to democratize it, um, especially but not limited to co-ops. Um, you had yeah. a very, very different intellectual uh, mm-hmm. environment that connected organic or that allowed for organic intellectuals who were in the trade unions, in the universities, in the in the movements to connect with each other. Uh, those possibilities, at least in the rich countries now, have been dramatically narrowed. Let's let's put it that way. So I think that that, you know, for now, we have to hold the tiller firm. We need mm-hmm. to understand that the uh, the journey is a struggle and we cannot count on particular victories. And we need to always, this is what I've always said, I always want to speak to the widest audience possible for the Mm -hmm. intellectual task at hand. Now, some intellectual tasks are extraordinarily important. They are maybe very, maybe have a very limited audience because they're very philosophical and specific or fine-grained about a particular historical episode. And others are much more about Why is nature an imperialist concept and how does it how does it get into your thinking and your everyday life mm-hmm. and shape how you you uh, you know shape your relationship with your boss? I mean, that's a conversation that I could have and have had. And so um, those are I, th- I think what we need to do is to go back also and look at people like Paul Baran on the on the commitment of the intellectual and Noam Chomsky, the responsibility of intellectuals, many others to look at those ideas and then look at how we build, I think, communities of solidarity within the knowledge factory that practice intellectual disobedience, not just against administrators. Sometimes that's necessary, sometimes it's not. But Mm -hmm. I think especially against um, academic expertise and authority and the disciplines that determine who gets jobs and who doesn't, who gets reviewed, And who doesn't? Who gets mm-hmm. clarified? Whose recommendations get clarified as or defined as policy? And note, if you're too much, if you're too left wing, you're no longer doing policy. You're doing politics. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you do what Tony Benn wanted to do in 1974 and say, 
let's not just nationalize, but democratize and impose planning agreements to channel and discipline capital investment. That's not policy. You couldn't possibly do that. Um, yeah. You know, that's not unrealistic, being reasonable. right? So we need to realize that that this is, I think, key to this is building those solidarities and yeah. understanding that we can differ. And this is, uh, we can differ without differing over questions of principle. This is the point that I made with my eco-socialist colleagues who um, have said that I'm a friend of the climate deniers. And I was going to bring that up, actually, the uh, kind of discord in the eco-Marxist well, left, let's say. Discord is, a, I think, is a euphemism. I think what we're seeing there <laughs> is, uh, you know, these are people like Andreas Malm and John Bellamy Foster, who are, I, I've said this out loud many times, being intellectually dishonest, but they can't see uh, that I have tremendous appreciation for what they do. I uh, have written so many times. I've said so many times, including this one. Um, you know, if we want to be like Malm and be ecological Leninists, Let's do what Lenin did, which was to build, you know, popular fronts, build strategic alliances mm -hmm. and uh, to find ways to cohere common programs, even when we disagree over particular questions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's OK. We can disagree over whether the origins of capitalism are in the English countryside in the 1700s and whether it began uh, all across the Atlantic world in the 15 and 1600s. That's all right. We can disagree. We can have philosophical disagreements. We can have ideological agreements, up, disagreements up to a point. Um, but yes, indeed. I mean, this is, it's just absolutely tragic. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's playbook academic sectarianism. Um, and unlike those two figures, I've actually spent most of my time in one or another organized left socialist or communist group uh, in, for most of my lifetime. In fact, since I was a child, I grew up around the communist party. I saw every kind of sectarian behavior imaginable. They're doing it all, and uh, there's no need for it. I mean, yes. in a way, I'd say that's yeah. quite Leninist uh, behavior. I mean, Lenin was was extremely sectarian at, uh, before the revolution, at least. Like when no, he was, no. you know, I mean, he... no, no, I'm not. I know. I mean, Leninist. No? Okay, I'll give you a pass on that. <laughs> but if you look at, at Lenin's actual arguments. He is consistently bending the stick one direction or the other. He's saying to the party cadre, you need to listen more to the workers. You're not listening enough. Then I guess saying, I was thinking no, more the earlier parts where he was still traveling around Europe and he was trying to kind of take over the um, the Bolshevik center. Like he he seemed to kind of uh, split apart bit by bit the the general like party until he controlled quite a, a, a core fundamental part and he seemed to alienate a lot of his friends throughout the i think 1910s or 1900s um and I've, I've just been reading his biography by uh robert service um, oh no is it, is it that bad? <laughs> I, I mean, don't know. Robert Service was out a of professional anti-communist historian. So, oh, okay, um, <laughs> I did not. I mean, <laughs> I mean, and I'm not saying he didn't. He didn't, you know, have have facts. Uh, mm -hmm. But, but anyway, I'm not saying I'm not, I'm not one of these people who says Lenin walked on water. All right. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, that's, uh, and so I don't want to, you know, we can we can disagree over this or that. But uh, the writing of biographies of famous revolutionaries is, as mm -hmm. you can imagine, enormously contested. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I'll, have the, I'll note that down because I did not know Robert Service had that as a as a um, this comes up a, for this. This comes this is important to our discussion, because one mm -hmm. of the things that I've said is that the eco-socialist left and environmentalist movements um, don't pay any attention to history. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I don't think they're very interested in history. But one of the one of the, even the eco-socialists don't seem to want to draw just a balanced accounting of the real accomplishments, along with the the serious mistakes of Soviet, Chinese, Cuban, other state socialist projects. There seems to be a kind of hostage video confession that every leftist has to make of, oh, of course, the Soviet Union was just as bad. They were they did terrible things. They were totalitarian. And uh, to that, they say, uh, no, Uh, first of all, it's empirically not true. And a new generation of younger uh, 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 historians, uh, environmental historians, especially of Soviet Russia, uh, uh, a fellow uh, historian named Brain, believe it, Stephen Brain, I think, um, is brilliant. But there are others who have uh, really done a great job. They're like, look, there were, you know, yeah, a lot of environmental sacrifice zones. Were they worse? Probably not. Um, and if you look at the balance sheet, which we need to do, you have, in, in the case of China and the Soviet Union, two countries which rebuilt themselves after being destroyed, leveled to the ground by fascist mm-hmm. empire. Mm-hmm. And did so with actually on a fairly sustainable basis, did so in a very egalitarian way and did so while maximizing the uh, uh, provision of basic goods, including consumer items, um, uh, mm-hmm. as rapidly as possible. I mean, by the 50s, Khrushchev is not only engaged in a massive housing campaign, but uh, uh, in fact, commissions a whole series of fashion houses like to design clothing for the Soviet peoples. Um, again, it's not that any of these projects was, you know, the true path. That's not the point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we won't even look at them. And, yeah, yeah. and that's just that's just wrong. I like to say um, that uh, there are days where I recognize that the greatest contribution to human wealth, well-being, and the well-being of the web of life in the 20th century was the Soviet destruction of Nazism. And I don't think that's even a controversial statement. But if you say it, people are like, oh, no, you, how, how dare you? You know, no, it was American Lend-Lease. Mm. It was not American <laughs> Lend-Lease, although that did hasten the end of the war. Uh, um, but people won't get into the nitty gritty because it goes to this question of history. They won't look at what actually happened. Like they won't look at what actually happened with the Industrial Revolution. They all say, OK, let's say that you want to uh, date it, uh, date the, car- the climate crisis from the Industrial Revolution in 1800. No mm-hmm. way. You don't have a significant uptick in carbon dioxide concentrations um, that would be familiar and modern. So, you know, really on the way up until after 1860. No, it wasn't that earlier phase. It was mm-hmm. the new wave of the second Industrial Revolution with autos and petrochemicals and electrical industries. And. History matters to all of this because, to your point, Skander, it shapes the political choices that we make today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I just want very quickly to go back to that uh, rift and that you mentioned, mm-hmm. or I, I don't know how you want to qualify. You said the uh, discord is a euphemism, but I was wondering how that's affected you personally um, and your work uh, to, I guess, because I, I, from what I understood, you did work closely at some points or at least were kind of colleagues with some people and who you then kind of fell out with. And I was wondering. No, I never fell no? out with, I mean, no, no, there was never a falling out. No, I mean, okay. uh, Bellamy Foster was a, a professor of mine when I was an undergrad. Okay. Okay. And we had, a, we, and then as I matured as a scholar, he was, uh, I wrote the, uh, he wrote the first article on the metabolic rift. I wrote mm-hmm. the second. Right. right uh, yeah. <laughs> and I was, I thought it was a great idea. 
I still think it was a groundbreaking intervention. I've said so many times. Mm-hmm. I used it to great effect. And uh, after about eight or nine years, I thought, well, is this it? Mm-hmm. Is that real? And it didn't include a lot of things. He didn't elaborate a, a lot. He didn't elaborate the labor process within it. So where are human beings in the metabolic rift? He didn't elaborate uh, um, a lot of different dimensions of this process. And that's not a damning criticism, right? We can mm-hmm. all only do so much. And uh, so I proceeded to invite him uh, every year for five or six years. I said, let's let's uh, organize an event. Let's organize a public dialogue. Um, I said uh, explicitly, I said that one of the dangers is uh, left sectarianism and that mm-hmm. you'll, uh, your camp and my camp will go to war. Uh, little did I suspect that he would engage in an intellectually dishonest smear campaign. And this is one of the ways I think in which, um, you know, we talk a lot about really, uh, some of these people say decolonize this or that. I mm-hmm. don't know if I want to use that language exactly, but the spirit of it, that we all carry within us certain sort of dysfunctional behaviors and uh, responses to situations. And what Foster decided to do, instead of organizing a public event where we could go through our common ground and not, was to engage in uh, an absolute smear of me in which I he characterizes me as an enemy of socialism, as a friend of the climate deniers, um, later as a Latourian. I wonder if he really has ever read Latour. Um, uh, same with Malm. Uh, as, a, no. as an idealist, as a neoclassical guy, because all I talk about Price, I wrote an entire book that was a critique of Price and a conception of value that was a critique Negative of that. Negative value stuff, yeah. Right, right. So there's a whole series of, of interventions. But my own response uh, was, um, you know, I thought cooler heads would prevail, but it didn't. It goes back to uh, uh, Mark Twain, that uh, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting its socks on. And so I'll tell you, I found it very, I thought that it was very much a campaign of intimidation uh, directed not only against me, and I don't use this word lightly, um, and I'm happy to say it in public. I thought it was a campaign of intimidation that I know for a fact rippled outward to younger scholars where maybe not Foster himself, but certainly some of the people in his circle were busy intimidating uh younger intellectuals who wanted to experiment with some version of a heterodox world ecology Marxism. And, um, you know, and, and, uh, and so you see, this is not uncommon. I mean, famous scholars will routinely intimidate younger scholars. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that you've even seen this. I've seen this. I was lucky. I was blessed to be, uh, uh, to study with brilliant uh senior scholars who treated me as a comrade, who treated mm. me as somebody who needed to be encouraged. And essentially, they didn't, they never told me what to do. They just pushed me to experiment more and to connect more. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what I was doing with Foster, where I raised powerful questions about the metabolic rift that should be treated seriously above all those that are about historical turning points. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. for me, I'm I am probably in my generation the closest to the monthly review tradition of any Marxist. And that tradition was centrally grounded in a historical version of historical materialism. This monthly review was the journal that published 
uh, Giovanni Arrighi, a teacher and comrade of mine, Emmanuel Wallerstein, a comrade of mine, Samir mm. Amin, um, of course, uh, 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 people like Harry Magdoff and Paul Sweezy, all intimately concerned with deep historical questions, not afraid to debate the historical turning point. Foster never once wants to engage the historical question. And it's the same with Malm. Instead, what are they doing? They're doing what Marx and Engels and the German ideology lament about the ideal of the young Hegelians. They're saying the young Hegelians just throw their phrases against other phrases, right? Precisely, mm -hmm. Skander, what you were saying. They're quibbling over words. They're yeah. not dealing with the heart of historical materialism. How does class society form? How do they restructure? How do they resolve crises? Well, how do they give way from one class society to another, or hopefully from class society to socialism and then beyond? Uh, you know, these are this is this is a very um, corrosive element of radical culture. This turn towards sectarianism. Mm -hmm. I'll be sharp in my differences with other people, but I'll also be full of praise for them. It'll be uh, born of, a born of sympathy as well. If you're if you're common, if you're working towards a common goal, I always feel like there there needs to be this sympathetic like background to what you're doing because you know that you're ultimately at least uh, you know in, in some respects obviously not with everyone that you criticize right. but in the law in some respects a lot of the people that you criticize or that you work with or or uh, write about are trying to aim for the same goals as you are which is a kind of liberation of of some kind um and i i don't know i think that yeah for what i from what i've seen it seems like a lot of people forget that sympathetic uh background to their critique or at least it gets a bit uh personal and and quite nasty sometimes it's absolutely destructive well personal it's it is personal but let's be clear and, and i'm not correcting you for the sake of correcting um mm -hmm. one of the one of the the ways that that professors look at oh you know it's personal and it's not personal uh there might be emotions involved it's sectarian it's mm -hmm. political okay. and it's sectarian and that overrides uh, the attention to arguments uh, mm -hmm. like I'm still it's still not clear to me that either Malm uh, or uh, Foster or any of these others, uh, but especially those two have read capitalism in the web of life as opposed to cherry pick it with a PDF search string, um, <laughs> because the central idea here is how we began, which is uh, a critique of ideology. And it was very, very clear and has been clear ever since. It won't touch it. I um, we we we're gonna start wrapping it up because we, we're running on nearly two hours. I don't want to take you up too too long, but I'm very sorry to to keep you here for no so worries. long. But I I do have uh some also some very like some burning questions. I saw a couple a couple maximum, but um, of one of which is uh about degrowth. So in our intro talk uh we had last week or so um we very briefly mentioned it, and it's. So degrowth is a topic that uh, I've been increasingly uh, interested in. And for some reason, it, it struck a chord in me, the, the degrowth literature, the, the people that work on it. Um, it it like hit something deep in my core, I don't know, that, that I just felt an affinity for it, um, for the field and for the people and the work that I've, that I've read, at least. Obviously, not all of it. Some of the degrowth literature is bullshit and is you know sometimes even unfortunately uh malthusian and it's it's just horrendous but a lot of what i've seen the the more like the smart ones seem to be uh extremely well read extremely well like written and 
I know that, yeah, you, you seem to have qualms about it. And I was wondering if you could maybe uh, reiterate those uh, issues for us. And, you know, I'm sure that we probably agree on a lot of the issues of degrowth, as I remember you saying that it's quite plastic word. And I definitely agree. I think degrowthers themselves are not sure really what degrowth is. I've seen it defined as a conversation, as uh, a political program, as like a uh, school of thought, as a policy. Like it's, it, it's, it is like plastic by nature, but I think deep down there is an interesting concept of the, I guess, lowering of throughput, uh, which could be kind of integrated into, uh, let's say like, for example, a socialist framework, um, but I remember you saying that you had, yeah, that you had uh, problems with it. So I was wondering if you could illuminate something. No, I'm I'm very sympathetic to uh, the spirit of degrowth, which, of course, you know how how do we build, in my view, how do we build a socialism that is uh, efficient in terms of material flows, and is vigorous in terms of sustaining uh, the work of nature as a whole to regenerating soils. Uh, to rebuilding the cities to allow for the kind of energetic and biophysical efficiencies, et cetera. Uh, I think uh, uh, Jorgis Kallas, uh, Jason Hickel, especially on the question of imperialism, um, have made some important contributions. Mm -hmm. So again, like you're saying, when you have a slogan like this, which I think translates terribly into English, I, I mean, yeah. in, in, in French, it's, it's, it, it makes it has a bunch better feel in French, but in in English, I don't think it works very well, and that's a problem because English is the global language, at least for now. As a as a politics, let me just go there. As mm -hmm. a politics, it's very difficult when we have a fetish that is part of our slogan, and the problem is not growth. The problem is not economic growth. Economic growth is a fetish. The problem is capital accumulation. We could imagine other uh, laws of value that would have very different ways of valuing humans in the web of life. So we want to we want to be aware that that whenever we say, "Well, growth is the problem," that's not a new argument. I mean, uh, and I don't mm -hmm. think the degrowthers, uh, certainly the more erudite of them. Think it's brand new. It goes. It comes mm -hmm, directly mm -hmm. out of Earth Day environmentalism. That should be a warning, though. So while the spirit is, I think, entirely laudable, I'm I'm never sure what the real politics are. What are the political implications for democratic control over savings and investment? I don't have the answer to that. And maybe maybe you can tell me who is good. And I would. There love are to hear some it. really great books that have just come out. One of which I've been wanting to read, which I haven't been able to yet. Uh, I think by George Callis, actually about um, how to implement degrowth, or like what degrowth means uh, policy-wise, or actually like, I guess in real life. Um, but just on what, one thing that you said that the problem is not economic growth; it's capital accumulation. Do you think that? Economic growth doesn't entail uh, a a like coupling of resources. Like, do you think that we can decouple economic growth from resource use because it doesn't? I don't seem... think economic growth is a thing. I mean, that's it's a little hard for me to uh, uh, mm. wrap my mind around it for that. 
reason, I'm reminded of the, the classic book by the uh, New Zealand parliamentarian Marilyn Waring called If Women Counted. And you can imagine where their argument uh, was that women, most of what women do as workers is not counted in national accounting. Is is economic Childcare growth comes like directly out of uh, the imperatives of imperial governance, as we spoke mm -hmm. about earlier. And so we, if we said, instead of degrowth, we're looking to disaccumulate capital. Now, that's something. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens a lot of times, so even say somebody like Jorgis wants to stipulate that, then the question, and I don't expect everybody to have an answer to everything, but based on historical experience, we should have a strong sense of the history here that when you have states that truly discipline capital, mm -hmm. right? So, which we need to do in the climate crisis because we need to take savings and investment decisions out of the hands of private capital and put it uh, um, uh, at the hands of the public mm -hmm. and direct that investment to rebuild the electrical grids, rebuild the cities, um, rebuild practically everything in this world for a, uh, not just for carbon minimization, but for carbon absorption, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. We need to rebuild yeah. the uh, agricultural and agrarian systems. Everything needs to be done. Well, so that means taking the power away from capital around savings and investment. That means, let's be clear about that. That means socializing capital as a class. And right. we have a history, we have a very recent history in the mid-1970s for what happened when there were even timid moves in that direction. Allende's Chile, overthrown in mm -hmm. 1973. Olaf Palma's uh, government um, driven out in 1976 after the second Meidner plan, which would have expropriated um, private capital by worker-owned pension funds. We have that with the Wilson government in 74-76, which was actually brought down by a, a soft coup of MI5 and 6 and the CIA and IMF. Um, never mind, you know, countless stories of third world fascism all around the world. Never mind the, the fury unleashed against state socialist projects. So um, a lot of times we get, well, we can transition to degrowth like we're all just going to cooperatize and parliament will pass favorable legislation and it's and capital will see its power waning, but they'll stand by. They'll see the will of the people. Capital never well, lets the will of the no, people. No, I... I I do think that from what I've seen, most of the degrowth literature seems to be extremely anti-capitalist. And, and of course, you know, Which means how, how it is anti-capitalist is very important, right? But I think that at least um, a lot of them seem to uh, see capitalism as uh, incompatible with degrowth, at least. So I, I guess no, the course. capital accumulation then comes into contact. But what I'm wondering is like in the socialist state, for example, how how does a socialist state um, keep within planetary boundaries, for example, without something like degrowth? Well, degrowth again is is rests on a fetish, so I, I think that it poses the wrong questions. But I think this that um, it get, like that at their best, socialist projects valued public luxury for the many over private luxury for the few. Mm -hmm. And that's important. I mean, we know that there will be no resolution to the climate crisis without doing two things, rebuilding the cities and rebuilding the countrysides and the agricultural systems. Mm -hmm. And those both can be done in very, very egalitarian, democratic and sustainable ways. 
but that's giving a kind of von Thunen flat plane representation to the problem. Here's the big problem, that if you do it in a meaningful way, you go after the basis of capitalist class power, and they're the ones with the guns. Mm-hmm. And that's been the history of, of socialism and imperialism in the 20th century. And that, by the way, is still the history. We will coup whoever we want. So I'm, that's not a critique. I'm not, I'm not sort of painting a negative picture of degrowth. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that I think as, as a slogan, and I'm not denying the valuable work can and does occur, under the heading of degrowth intellectually, but as a slogan, it points us in the wrong direction. It points us towards a fetish. And at its best, I think they would say it defetishizes growth. I think that's what they would say. Right. Right. So you you do Um, think that a a socialist society would, um, would, for example, tackle hyper-consumerism, which has been like highlighted by degrowth a lot, but obviously by many, many others before it, but do you think that a socialist state would, for example, tackle hyper-consumerism as an ecological threat? Well, um, but, but it's perfect that you mentioned that, actually, because hyper-consumerism is not a problem. Now, it's a symptom of a deeper problem. Okay. But mm-hmm. no, that uh, we know this from Donella Meadows and her colleagues in Beyond the Limits to Growth, that for every, uh, uh, for every uh, a unit of waste in um, consumption, you have about 19 units of waste in production. These processes are production-driven. Gr- and consumerism, hyper-consumerism, that's a spectacularly sort of Western European social democratic concern. I remember it from my time. Yeah, yeah. And degrowth is specifically about Western European, you know. And and in that sense, it dovetails with other arguments I find deeply problematic, like uh, 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 the imperial mode of living with uh, Wissen and Brand and other people. This Mm. is a kind of PMC, quasi-Malthusian, um, sort of leftish environmentalism. And what's it's dancing around the problem. The problem is the, the cap is the, the accumulation mechanism. And there can be capitalist accumulation, there can be socialist accumulation. Socialist accumulation is democratic. It is premised on working class power. So if you're asking, would uh would it look like whatever we imagine hyper-consumerism to be? Uh, no, mm-hmm. absolutely not. Of course not. But the deeper question is how to get from here to there, because there can be no transition uh, under threat of nuclear annihilation, which is basically the history of 20th century socialism. Yeah, but I guess if we don't know what the there looks like, if, you know, uh, it, to take a very, like, generic example, which I, I know in a lot of ways is uh, problematic in itself, but... Uh, let's take the example of like let's say energy in general right we we use quite a lot of energy for example here in belgium where i live uh and yet our wind turbines are planned to double uh within the next six seven years um this is just purely driven by growth and energy use right and of course there's reasons why we have energy use because we need that energy to manufacture, to power several things. And I guess I can't help but feel like where where would the socialist state draw the line as to what is like what is growth uh, for the many in a way that helps the the kind of uh, I guess the lower well the the worker class attain a higher mode of living or like a, a more uh, 
like a liberated and and kind of um uh, what's the word i'm looking for and we we have a certain standard of living i guess that we would want others to be able to attain but there are potential limits to what the earth can do and of course but that's people, part of yes of course in the abstract there you they, see what i'm trying to say that the, like I know that's problematic. Most of what, it's quite here's, problematic the, here's the to, bottom line: most of what goes on, most of the production under capitalism yeah. is for a bunch of wasteful shit. Basically, okay. Thank you. Bombs and tanks and yeah. uh, two billion rubber ducks that float float in bathtubs <laughs> and anything else you can imagine. Mm -hmm. It's not for you know a tractor you need for a construction project or for a farm. It's it's mm -hmm. not. Those kinds of basic things. I'm not saying under socialism you can't have a rubber duck that floats in the tub, but the the dry the the all of that that you describe is a symptom of the pathology of the capital accumulation system to produce more and more and more. So most energy throughput mm -hmm. systemically is related in one way or another to the production system, including for transportation. Which is, well, I mean, Belgium and the Netherlands are much better than other places on this, where you actually have cities that are walkable and public transport and all mm -hmm. the rest. That's a perfect example. Rebuild the cities so that you can take advantage of the best things that cities do. So you clearly mm -hmm. have glimpses of that. Even in, even in you know, capitalist Western Europe, you can think of Red Vienna in the 20s. We have one day of, the of uh, free, no car, car-free Brussels one day a year. <laughs> right, right. You know, uh, uh, you can, you can, if you reorganize the uh, uh, savings and investment system to serve mm -hmm. the working class, the vast majority, then you have a very different dynamic and a very, very different relationship to what's called consumption. Now, the other problem is that consumption got redefined by environmentalists and others um, in the 1970s and 80s. Most of what goes on under the category of consumption involves a lot of work. It's mm -hmm. usually moms, but sometimes moms and dads going to the grocery store, taking the kids to the doctor, buying, you know, buying clothes, doing a lot of this. I don't I mean, I don't know. I can't afford to go take some nice vacation in, in Mexico. It's not I mean, I, I don't know who we're talking about. Um, but a lot of it involves a huge, huge amount of socially necessary unpaid work. And that's that's another fundamental thing we didn't talk about. But mm -hmm. I think what socialism would do is to valorize, not in a price sense, but to valorize the unpaid work and therefore mm -hmm. speak directly to the racial and gendered dimensions mm -hmm. of class society. That's fundamental, too. So, I mean, I think almost axiomatically, a socialist uh, project would be much more uh, um, energy efficient and use much less energy because it simply would not be producing uh, so much of what's wasteful under capitalism. Ideally speaking. Yeah, yeah. Jamie, do you have any uh, questions? Sorry, I've been, I've been asking yeah. question after question. <laughs> well, um, I would like to ask about sort of your, because you were earlier, you were saying the way forward, a really good way forward would be to have this uh, intellectual solidarity, to have you know, intellectuals at least cooperating. And, you know, I'd really like to delve into that, but specifically how can we get, you know, ordinary people, working class people involved like in, in these groups. And, it, you know, it's not just a, a matter of disseminating ideology, you know, it's about building up those, um, those skills in, 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 in a bit in like critical reflection of the world around them and things like that. Um, 
but I know this is a rabbit hole, a wonderful rabbit hole that we can go <laughs> down. Um, so well, yeah, I, like how, I what, whatever ideas you have on, on that topic. I think one is, I mean, uh, I, I don't know what, what your class background is, but I grew up in a uh, single mother working class household. So, uh, you know, I come out of the working class. And I think that accounts for a lot of my heterodox attitudes in the academy. I think uh, to the extent that we work in universities, we need to try to build working class alliances between students, staff, and faculty. Mm, mm. Uh, uh, so I work, I'm, I'm employed at a very working class university. Uh, some, some are not so hospitable and uh, more socially elite, and that's going to be different. Uh, but I think where it's possible, we ought to understand that when we work and study in universities, we are in the knowledge factory. And that doesn't mean that everything that happens in the knowledge factory is bad. Um, there are many, many good people. There are even good elements of how that factory works. Uh, but it does mean that we need to understand this is not a classless utopia mm -hmm. inside mm -hmm. the university. Mm -hmm. There is a class struggle in the universities, and we should respond accordingly. Now, uh, I think other people can uh, uh, speak perhaps more keenly uh, attuned to the specificities of social strategy here or there. In the United States, you see an extraordinary level of working class unity around basic questions of universal health care, yeah. um, access to education, even against the war. It hasn't it doesn't translate into a politics because of the nature of the two party dictatorship here. Yeah. Uh, but there are real possibilities. I would say for me as an intellectual, what I try to do is not only to speak um, uh, as best I can to wider audiences, but also to use those opportunities to listen and to allow those experiences to shape what I am doing, how I am thinking, what I am studying. It's going to look differently for everyone. And then with other political, uh, with other comrades inside and outside the universities, where you have differences, be honest about them, where you have common ground, let's build on that. I stand ready to build a united front with folks like Monthly Review and Bellamy Foster, with Andreas Malm, with all of these people. If you're serious, about building a unified socialist project, send me an email. Uh, and I'll say that to, to uh, uh, anyone else who, out there who maybe isn't comfortable or has disagreements with me. That's a good thing. We need disagreements. Mm -hmm. Differing mm -hmm. over particular points is not a difference of principle. And we should stop behaving as such. That is not a socialist virtue to go out and be sectarian. We need to look for how do we how do we unify first and then mm -hmm. be honest about the differences? Lo and behold, that's what I say intellectually in capitalism is in the web of life. Stop thinking about humans and nature as separately and ask how they're how they fit together. So let's embody that dialectical sensibility, not just as abstract method, but as praxis. That sounds like a very good call to action. I love it. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I think you were discussing this earlier, weren't you? Because that there have been historical examples of a formation of a united socialist front, um, intellectually at least. Um, and I'm guessing, you know, is 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 it easy to take lessons from that? Has that sort of been analysed thoroughly as to as to the the sort of challenges and the strategy in in getting that uh, together? Unfortunately, more negative than positive experiences, and we should yeah. we should learn from both. Um, I mean, I've been uh, uh, neck deep into the history of the '60s and looking at 
the famous split, for instance, between um, uh, Hayden, Tom Hayden and SDS at Port Huron in the old left, represented by Michael Harrington, the founder of uh, Democratic Socialists of America. It's a very, very famous split. It really mm. undermined uh, what was then a very fragmented and weak American left. You can look at missed opportunities of the Black Panthers and Communist Party USA seeking to build a united front. But then again, you can have positive experiences. I look at the 1930s. There was a lot of sectarianism there, but the Communist Party was able to build a very, very significant multiracial working class movement that had real social power in the United States and real political influence as well. So I think we need to look at, at the good and the bad. Uh, the positive and the negative, and see what we can learn. One of the things I took away from seeing the decomposition of the American socialist left in the 1980s and 90s was we need to seize opportunities for, well, what we used to call regroupment at every point. And that didn't mean we pretended that we didn't disagree over important questions. But when it came to socialist strategy, to working class unity, to questions of, I, I would like to say, class in the web of life, then we should move forward on that basis and and see what possibilities emerge. Yeah. All right. I think on the on that call to action and on the yeah this it's it's true that uh, I think there's always a a dose of solidarity is always needed in in the circles the. We frequent as uh, I guess it's uh, leftists, uh, whatever that means these days. <laughs> but um, but on that note, thank you so much, Jason W. Moore, yeah, for you, joining us. It's uh, it's been absolutely lovely to have you and to to hear uh, your words more directly. And we'll be sure to continue reading your work and catching up with it whenever it comes out. Is there anything that you'd like to shout out in terms of? Um, things you would like people to go and check out or things that are coming up, um, that sort of thing? Well, I think if you're curious for more of this, again, you can go to my website, jasonwmore.com. And then I recommend going to academia.edu and checking out World Ecology with the hyphen. And you can see our spirit, which is very much to let 100 flowers bloom. And uh, it is as best we can uh, a way of materializing, of enacting this solidaristic approach imperfectly but uh to the best of our ability and there's the world ecology research network right? there's a world that ecology research network like as well organized and right? organized and we have yeah. annual meetings and uh, we would awesome. love to see any of you the two of you any comrades yeah, yeah. Uh, are, listening who are interested. are they are they done in real life these days or on they Zoom? are in fact uh, uh we just did a hybrid in bonn germany and we decided okay. no more hybrids <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> too much oh, i mean good, if you have good, a lot good, of good. resources you can do it but uh we have no resources it's all unpaid right. labor of love so mm -hmm. um Yes, absolutely. And uh, come and you can uh, sign up on our website to receive emails for the World Ecology Research Network. Don't worry, we don't bombard you. And uh, um, please uh, check us out. Yeah, 100%. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Take care.